how do you do that? How do you create a positive relationship with physical activity? Well, it's about repeated pleasant experiences. You're listening to the Fitness Industry Podcast, powered by Australian Fitness Network. For articles, resources, and inspiration to grow your fitness business and career, go to fitnessnetwork.com.au, where you can also find a huge range of online courses accredited for CECs and other professional development credits, with up to a massive 30% saving for members of Australian Fitness Network. And for face-to-face learning, network members also save on standard rates for Filex, the fitness industry convention. Weight management psychologist Glenn McIntosh chats with the fitness industry podcast's Belle Fong about the sustainable habits of intuitive eating, developing positive relationships with exercise, not getting hung up on weight loss, and why we shouldn't try to exercise and diet a mastiff into a poodle. Okay, Glenn, thanks so much for chatting to the Fitness Industry Podcast. Thanks for having me, Belle. No worries. All right, well, let's get straight into it. I want to ask you, I guess, everything to do with weight management psychology, but the first question is, how can PTs help create eating habits that last? Oh, excellent question. Good one to start off with because I think that we're we're so ingrained in this kind of diet culture or fast weight loss culture that we kind of always focus on the short term and all of our clients want the short term and the reality is that sometimes focusing on those short term sort of gains that will get results aren't it kind of undermines your ability to create lasting habits so i would really encourage people to look into the world of intuitive eating or sometimes we call it mindful eating and what that comes from is research on people who eat well without trying. So, you know, Belle, those people that can kind of say no to the chocolate and they actually mean it, you know, they're like, oh, no, I don't really want that. Or people who leave a bit of food on their plate and it doesn't fuss them. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. a lot of behavioral researchers and psychologists have researched these guys and we call them intuitive eaters. And the, the thing is they're actually not dieters. So they don't do the go on a particular type of plan and then go off it again because most of those diets don't actually kind of work in the long term. So I would definitely recommend your trainers look into intuitive eating and at least supplementing the meal plans with intuitive eating abilities or my preference is actually letting go of those plans and just developing those intuitive eating abilities to the point where you kind of eat well without trying. So can I quickly, Belle, talk you through the, the five principles of intuitive eating? Perfect, because that was going to be my next question. What no, actually is intuitive eating? So I that's stole your thunder. It's all <laughs> because a lot of people, it's really born out of this culture that we're starting to see emerge of non-dieting. And there is a lot of confusion around what this actually is and what it isn't. So I'll talk you through the principles really, really quickly. The first one is actually probably one that stumps most people is that we see food as morally neutral. So food is actually, we don't see it as good 
or bad or right or wrong or allowed or not allowed. So the first rule is there are no forbidden foods. That doesn't mean that you end up eating all foods, but it does mean that you, you don't create rules that ban certain foods. Because when you do that, we get all sorts of unhelpful effects. Your mind kind of rebels against that in what we call the forbidden fruit effect. You know, when you, we're not allowed foods, we want them more. It's the same with everything. There's like a rebellious kid inside all of us. And when someone says, you can't have that, we want it more. So that's the first rule is that all foods are allowed. Intuitive eaters eat a whole variety of foods. Second thing is when they eat, they're actually eating. They're paying attention to the eating experience. So they're eating mindfully. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to kind of light a candle and meditate before every meal, but it does mean if you're like driving the car or watching TV and on the iPad and, you know, checking your Facebook, you're probably not eating super mindfully. Mm-hmm. So that's principle number two. I always like to, t- to talk to people about creating an everyday mindfulness in eating. And what that means is, is not taking it to an extreme where you have to eat in a certain way, but just where you just acknowledge the fact that you're eating and savour the flavours and the textures and the smells of the eating experience. So that's number two. Number three, so important, it's honouring your body's natural signals of hunger and fullness. So we've got these natural signals inside of us and a lot of people might think, oh, I don't really know when I'm hungry and full. If you practice, the the signals are always there so you, you can learn to really get in touch with that and just use that as your natural sign to start eating and stop eating. We get all of these million rules about when to eat, when not to eat, what to eat, what not to eat, how much to eat. But if you listen to your body's wisdom, then it will often tell you how much it wants to eat. So it is the the trick there is obviously listening. But again, that's a skill like kicking a footy or riding a bike. Over time, it does become natural. And that's, I think, one of the reasons, Belle, why why the mindful and the intuitive eating works so much better than dieting in the long term is that there's good research to show that these skills actually become habits. Dieting skills don't tend to become habits. Like recording your food all the time, very unlikely to become a habit. You know, keeping yourself to a very strict plan, very unlikely to be a habit. But learning these abilities, they do become natural over time. They take a bit of work to to develop, so we don't want to oversell it, but they do become second nature over time. So number four, now this is a a tricky one and this does take a little bit of time, but intuitive eaters are aware of all of the non-hungry eating cues. So most of our extra eating that contributes to our health and our weight issues is not when we're hungry. You know, it's because we're emotional or someone's offered or just because the food is there or the million other non-hungry reasons. So if we look at people who are, who are intuitive eaters, they tend to eat fairly well according to their hunger and fullness, but they're aware of all of those other reasons why they're eating so they can overcome them. So say if they're emotional, they're more likely to to deal with that feeling rather than to eat. Or if the food is just there, they will really acknowledge, you know what, I don't want that food. I'm I'm just tempted to eat it just because it's there and then they'll get over that little impulse. So that's principle number four is really overcoming those non-hungry food cues. Now that's not to say that non-hungry eating is bad 
you know, it's, we do a lot of non-hungry eating and that's, it's totally fine. Often when we go out and socialize, you know, if we go to the movies and have popcorn, it's not because we're hungry. It just means that we, we've got to be mindful of that because that is a cause of our, our extra eating. And number five is my personal favorite is eat psychologists. We love big words, Belle. And the, <laughs> the words we use are food choice, body congruence which means the food that you're eating is congruent with your body but really that what it really means is you're eating in a way that your body likes so what we're doing is taking the the moral judgments off food but actually listening to the way that foods affect us so looking at what foods just through your own experience what foods make you feel sluggish and bloated and give you a short burst of energy and then you're hungry again later and what foods make you feel sort of light and fresh and like you can focus, like you can, can exercise well. And it, it comes not from the, the creating rules around that or judgments, but from pairing how you eat with how you feel through thousands and thousands of pairings. And over time, without rules or without worrying about how even the eating choice affects your weight or your health, you start to just gravitate towards those foods that make you feel good, which are, of course, the more nutritious foods. Mm-hmm. Super interesting. Really love it. I love those five, five points. Mm. How important would you say psychology is in creating healthy eating and exercise habits? Well, Belle, I am biased because I am the psychologist, <laughs> but I think it is the missing piece of the puzzle. Like I think, you know, you've obviously got got heaps of trainers that you work with uh, i work with lots of trainers and i work with lots of dietitians and i think that they would probably agree that you know the easier part of their job is the exercise prescription and the same with the people who can do nutrition prescription that's the easier part of the job the harder part is is getting the person in the frame of mind to do it and not only to do it, to do it regularly, and not only to do it regularly, to actually enjoy it so it becomes just part of their life. So I believe that the once, you know, it's important for people to know, to know what to do with their physical movement, important to know what to do with their eating, but I think that that's probably the easier part of the job. And I actually think that trainers and, and people who are prescribing nutrition actually have to be half psychologists to do their job anyway. Yes, I think now more so than ever that it's becoming more and more important to kind of tap into the psychology of, of exercise and it's not just about the physical and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, you're an advocate of body positive, body, the body positive movement. What does body positive actually mean? Clearly, I'm having trouble even saying it. So <laughs> but it, is, it is funny <laughs> you should say that, Val, because we often talk about bo- body positivity <laughs> like learning a new language. <laughs> It is. And I think it's really important that we kind of understand what this body positivity is. You you, you hear it a lot in like sort of hashtags on Instagram as a big body positive movement. And and like any movement, you will find that the, the variations of it are as infinite as there are grains in the sand. But really what body positivity is about is about acknowledging that health and well-being and success in life comes in all shapes and sizes and there is no one size fits all as a super duper crude metaphor if you think of our clients and ourselves if we were all different breeds of dogs 
<laughs> you have some skinny, pretty little poodles. And then you have some Dobermans and some Mastiffs and some Great Danes and some Labs and some Chihuahuas. And, you know, if you get a Mastiff and you put it on a calorie-controlled weight management plan and you get it on the treadmill for regular intervals, it's never going to be a poodle. And that's what body positivity is about, is acknowledging that we're all different and, and we can really honour our bodies and love our bodies and nurture our bodies into our best health, not becoming like the, not, not feeling like we have to hate our bodies until we reach the thin ideal, which is absolutely a myth because Anybody who knows, who works in the fields of eating disorders or exercise addiction will, will tell you that, that those issues are, are you know, overrepresented in people who have that ideal. So it's sort of this, this crazy myth that while it's really important to be healthy, we're all aiming to be this perfectly thin, perfectly muscular ideal. And most of us aren't going to get there. Our bodies aren't designed to be that way. And for some of us, making ourselves look that way actually puts at us puts us at a higher risk of eating disorders, exercise addiction, and a whole host of psychological and social problems. So it's really about loving yourself into your healthiest, you know, way of being. Yeah, perfect. I think that was well said, particularly we're in the era now of, you know, social media and a lot of people posting, you know, before and after photos and, you know, models showing photos of their bodies and not yep. necessarily that are, you know, trying to promote uh, fitness, but just, you know, their bodies. And so people have this skewed idea that that's what they should look like and that's what they want to look like. And it's just not, just not realistic. for most Absolutely, Belle. And I think it's a, it's a challenge that we as health professionals need to navigate. For example, we do a lot with our online programs at the moment and we don't do before and after shots in our mm-hmm. online programs. And mm-hmm. our marketing team kind of constantly look at us and are like, oh, why don't you do that? You would mm-hmm. probably sell 50% more products if you did. And we kind of, we realize for us, it's not the way to go, but it, it's tough because this is what clients are looking for. So it, it has to be something that we, we each find where we sit with looking at, at how we support our clients and the messages we, we use to get them in the door mm-hmm. and also the, the messages that we use to support them once they are in the door. Yeah, perfect. Now, you've done some work on TV with The Biggest Loser. Can you tell us a bit about that experience? That was fun, Val. It was a pretty big ride. You know, we've kind of talked about already that I'm an advocate for intuitive eating rather than dieting and I'm a body positive advocate and I'm also a big advocate of enjoyable, balanced, low embarrassment physical movement. So it's interesting for me to do work on a show like The Biggest Loser. So anyway, what, what can I tell you about The Biggest Loser? We were trying to create the most balanced and holistic and positive show in the way that we treated the contestants. So it was, I found it a lot of fun working with the the producers 
to try and get evidence-based and authentic messages across in my sessions. I did um, end up doing six sessions with the contestants, so pretty much every week. And then also sort of trying to sneakily or less, less sneakily incorporate some non-dieting ideas into the show. So it was really kind of funny. I'm not a, uh, you know, we run a, a 12-month program with our clients that we call the 12-month transformation. And it's, it's almost like the opposite of the biggest loser in that sense that we don't, we don't promote any competition between anyone there. We don't do weigh-ins. And so I was a, an interesting person to come into the biggest loser world you know people would say to me oh glenn i'd you know get onto the studio and someone would say oh glenn did you hear that person left this left yesterday they were on shannon's team i was like oh i don't really mind because i don't even know whose team everyone's on <laughs> i just didn't know whose team and i'd say oh glenn how about this person they lost six kilos this week and i'd be like you know i don't care about weight loss and they'd be like oh yeah right I, I, we know you don't care about that but i i was actually to be to be honest with you bell i was I thought that I may have to fight to get good messages on there more than I did. The producers were really happy to, as long as there was something that was a bit visually entertaining or a bit of drama, they were kind of happy to to let me spread what I thought were great messages. So I was really very, very thankful to them for that. And I did find myself a couple of times saying, wow, to myself, I've got like seven cameras on you and and I'm thinking... I can't believe they're letting me say this stuff on the <laughs> Biggest Loser show. So it was a lot of fun. Good stuff. I think that show, you know, is met with two sides. You know, I think a lot of people think it's amazing what what people can achieve in that show in regards to weight loss and, you know, confidence and how they feel about themselves. And on the other side, you know, you've got the, you know, people that I guess dis- might disagree with, you know, the kind of how much they're pushing these these people and the kind of exercises that they're doing. So, well, you know, it's, look, it's, it's really... Yeah, it's really interesting, Val, because we had thought that, you know, that a lot of people do say that they're like, you know, doesn't these guys are, you know, pushing the contestants too hard. And so in terms of the, the exercise, don't get me wrong, the guys were working hard, but they weren't going as crazy as they'd ever been in any previous seasons. Same with the eating plan. It was a very kind of a, a sensible eating plan. And the way that we treated them was, you know, we didn't yell at them. We didn't get them arguing with each other too much. And the the funny thing is that it was a much better show for the contestants. The contestants are doing wonderfully, but it actually was more boring TV. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, people like the drama, people like the fast weight loss. And that's why I sort of come back to that point that it's up to kind of all of us to figure out that, you know, how we not only survive, but thrive and really support people without. Sometimes I think that, you know, our clients come in expecting fast, easy, big weight losses and, and that type of thing. And, and we've got to be mindful that, that we as health professionals, sometimes we know better than them and we, we can't always give people exactly what they want. Yeah, definitely. And so you do a lot of work with personal trainers. How have you found that in your business? Oh, Val, I, I love it. We up here, I'm up here in Brisbane, I've got a, a couple of trainers up here that, that are under weight management psychology. We call them size diverse personal trainers. So they're just they're really for people who live in larger and heavier bodies. So that's great. But I've been doing more and more work up here in Queensland and then more recently at Phylex with you guys. And we're going to be doing more stuff with you guys through the uh, Australian Fitness Network. So 
I am absolutely loving it. Traditionally, I've done a lot of work with psychologists through the Australian Psychological Society and another couple of groups. And that's awesome because I think that psychologists, we have such a powerful, we have so much value to add in this space. And so it's nice for me to help empower psychologists to, to really get into this area. I think that, that I also do a lot with dietitians and have done for the past 10 years through Dietitian Connection and the DAA. And I feel like the psychology of eating is so important. And I feel like psychologists and dietitians really are two people at the forefront of the weight management space. So I think that that's really important. And then more recently, I've started to do work with the trainers and I just felt... I love it because I think that more than any other group, I think that trainers are so, this is my experience of them, they're so caring towards their clients. I was actually talking to someone from one of the peak bodies of dietitians today and I said, we people who are trained you know, in the, the allied professions of the, the dietetics and psychology, we're actually not trained to care for our clients as much as you guys care for your clients. We don't send our clients text message reminders and say, hey, how are you doing in the middle of the week with your exercise plan? Or, you know, we don't call them personally when they're having a problem typically. So it's, I think that you guys are super caring. But also I think that, that my experience with, and I suppose it's, it's only trainers who have come to, to do work with me, but is that, Trainers are like absolute sponges for new information. And because I don't think you guys typically get a lot of formal psychology, I can just, I can do an hour and a half workshop with you guys, not a long period of time, but I can sort of see the, you know, the, the light bulbs go off and hear the brilliant questions and, ha- you know, be part of the discussion about how these principles and techniques would work with their clients. And I just know that I'm helping a room full of people, you know, might be 80 or 100 people that's then going to help literally thousands, tens of thousands of people. So I'm, I'm enjoying it because I think that the, the trainers are just, they just care so much and they just want to help so much. And I do really feel like a little bit of psychology goes a long way. I think given the context too that PTs have with their clients, you know, when you were saying that they, you know, message their clients and that kind of stuff, I think, you know, they're going to be the first point of contact if, you know, say they, they, they miss a training session or maybe they eat something they're not supposed to, they might send their, their trainer a text message and you're right, I think, you know, they're kind of, they've got the most contact with that person. So they're going to be the most influential. So if the trainer is going to tell their client something you know, whether it's about nutrition or exercise, then generally they're going to listen to them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's funny that that conversation I was having with that other person from the dietitians group as well, she said exactly the same thing. She said, it's just that you guys are so good at developing such a close relationship with your clients. And you, yeah, you just by virtue of the fact that you're seeing them more. And I also think though, there is something about, you know, psychologists and dietitians. We typically see people in like a sit down office environment. Mm -hmm. And I think there is something about that physical movements. You know, we don't really ever touch our clients, but you guys, you know, you might have the high fives or, you know, the correcting of the technique. And I think there's something about that being in a, a more natural environment and moving around and touching each other that, that just builds a, a closer relationship. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. 
So you're an expert in the psychology of exercise. What would you say is your biggest piece of advice to personal trainers? Okay, good one. Can I give two? <laughs> can, can I have? Can I take yes, two? You can definitely right. take two. <laughs> First one, and I, I say this to every health professional, and I have to remind myself of this five times a day myself, is to not feel like you have to be the expert. To understand that you are the expert on physical activity. If you're qualified, you're the expert on nutrition and whatever else your qualifications are, but to acknowledge that the client is the expert on themselves. So to make the process of the training a collaborative process. And now I know different trainers work different ways. Some people are far gentler. Some people, you know, really like to push people. And I think that that your clients will naturally kind of self-select into or out of that. But I do think there is so much rich information that can improve your the way you practice with clients, can improve your retention with clients. And then ultimately, if you're practicing in a better way, you're getting better retention, then you end up getting better results. There's so much rich information that can come from just asking and, and making sure the client knows that you're open to hearing about their experience. So that would be probably the, the first thing. And I do this all the time, Bell, with our trainers because the, the, your clients are not used to being able to tell you their real experience. So, you know, one of our clients that I send to one of our trainers will come back in after they've seen the trainer and I'll say, how'd you go with Grayson? And they'll go, yeah, yeah, really, really good. And I'll go, okay, what did you hate about it? And they kind of look at me like, oh, can I tell them the truth? And naturally, there are often things that we don't like. They go, oh, I really didn't like that. And we go, okay, great. And, and help them understand that they've got a voice in their training. And, and that just gets it builds a stronger rapport. But also, they're doing physical activity that they, they're going to enjoy more because they've got a say in it and they're doing more stuff that they like and less of stuff that they don't like. And then as a, a result of that, you get way better, way better outcomes long term, which is my interest, all my interest, Bell. And everything that I've said so far and will ever say is all about long term change because my interest is not helping people sort of create short term mm-hmm. gains. I think it's short-term gains undermines creating long-term habits. Now, on that, I suppose my second point is to, and this might sound like a weird metaphor, but I encourage my clients to, to really develop a positive relationship with exercise. So what I mean by that is that if a lot of people whether consciously or less consciously, don't have a very positive relationship with exercise. They might see it as a chore or pain or I work with a lot of people who live in larger bodies. They might see it as, oh, this is a punishment or something I've got to do because I'm too fat. Or There's a lot of negative relationship with exercise that people don't acknowledge. And, and I think if we don't acknowledge that, then we just see the clients slacken off or stop coming to sessions and we think, oh, they just weren't committed. But what I'm more interested in is rather than having people really try and use willpower to motivate themselves to do exercise that they don't have a positive relationship with is actually in focusing on the relationship with exercise. So the analogy I often give is, and you do it with me now, Val, if you think of, like think of your best friend or someone that you really love, mm-hmm. got them in your head, 
Okay. Yep. Say if they said to you, Belle, let's catch up and have a coffee or have a drink in the next couple of weeks, would you make it happen? Absolutely, 100%. All right, easy, no question. What if you think of your the person who annoys you most, like your most annoying relative or really annoying work colleague? Don't send, say any names. <laughs> you got okay. it? Yep. Yep. Think about if they said the same thing. They said, oh, well, you know what, let's catch up and have a coffee or let's catch up and have a drink in the next couple of weeks. What would I say? Yeah, what would you say? I'd probably make up an excuse not to go. Yeah, so you go from making any reason, getting over any excuse to making any excuse not to. And that's what I'm interested in is in helping people develop a positive psychological relationship with activity so it actually doesn't create that much willpower. And I think that if you look at, you know, a lot of people who get into the fitness professional, they have a really positive relationship with physical activity. And it's about, you know, how do you do that? How do you create a positive relationship with physical activity? Well, it's about repeated pleasant experiences so you do it and you feel empowered you do it and it's not very embarrassing you do it and you feel comfortable in what you're doing like you you're good at it even if you need to to start really small rather than oh my god i'm out of my depth most of the time so i would really encourage trainers to, to think about how they help clients develop a positive relationship with physical activity because what they'll do is they'll find then their retention rates go through the roof. The reality is the downside can be that sometimes people make slower gains because there are a lot of people who prefer to work a, a little bit less intensely and, and not smash themselves as hard, although that's, of course, not everyone. But our, our trainers, Bell at, at WMP, we have a retention rate that's about 90% of our clients. So it's huge. And the secret is, there's really, there's no secret. It's just we focus on the positive relationship first and then we make the gains actually the second priority and people stick with us for longer and it takes a little bit longer but they get way better gains over time because they stay engaged and they don't have to use as much willpower to keep going. It's funny you say that because the, the trainers that are teaching group fitness classes or small group training sessions that need to cater for you know different abilities and also different ways that people like to be pushed is going to be challenging because you're going to have, say, half the group that really want to push themselves to the point of, I want to keep, keep pushing until I almost vomit. And yep. the other group that say, well, I don't want to push myself that hard, but I want to be able to keep coming and I'm coming because I enjoy the class, not because I want to feel like I'm going to spew. Yeah, absolutely. And then also you do get some clients who are in that former group who just want to smash themselves, but they actually don't realize some people just love it. And that's the way they love to train. But there are a lot of people in that, that category also, I think that want short term results and they actually don't like smashing themselves. And you'll, they might be sporadic clients, you know, ones that come for a month or six weeks and then they're gone for the same amount of time. So sometimes it is a matter of the work that we do with people is actually helping people get in touch with what they really, really want to do because you do get those people who love smashing themselves and they really enjoy it. And other people who smash themselves 
for a whole bunch of reasons, maybe short-term gains or because they think that's the only way they can train or the session isn't worthwhile if they, they haven't, you know, almost vomited, like you say. So it's interesting. Sometimes we find that it's a matter of telling, you know, helping our trainers remind clients that they can experiment and see what they really, really like, even if that means pushing themselves a lot harder than they want to. So it's an interesting sort of thing to, to help people figure out exactly what is right by, by them. Yeah, definitely. Now, you're also an expert on the psychology of eating. So if you had one message you could give to trainers, or maybe two if, you, if you're so inclined, <laughs> yeah. uh, about nutrition prescription, what would it be? Yeah. Geez, Bell, you're making me sound like a big expert. I like this. <laughs> I'm coming back. You can invite me back anytime. Look, I think I don't need too much here. I think that I would say the first thing is make sure that you are qualified. So, that, you know, all of us need to practice inside our scope. And I can talk to clients about the psychology of their exercise. I would never get out there and say, here's how you do a burpee. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that would be the first thing. And once you're, if you're qualified to, to give that nutrition advice, the big thing I would say is don't, diet with your clients and what I mean by diet I'm going to be a little bit controversial here any eating plan where the main focus is how food choices affect your weight so if the person that you're working with when they're making a food choice is 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 thinking what what's this going to do to my weight whether it's calories or macros or a specific you're allowed this you're not allowed that eating plan if the person's main focus is their weight, they're dieting. And there is zero evidence to show us that any plan where the main focus is, is weight loss works in the long term. So that would be the, the key thing there is, is don't diet. A lot of the work we do with clients is actually about what they don't do. And if anyone wants to sort of check out a bit more of that, you can look up non-dieting or intuitive eating or mindful eating and, and start to explore that further. And that would be the other thing is, is really get into this, this intuitive eating at, at the very least as an adjunct to your meal prescription, but you might find that you like it so much that you want to just ditch the meal plan altogether. Mm -hmm. interesting oh great i really like that now one last question you've got some very strong ideas on trainers dietitians doctors and psychologists working together so tell us about them oh yeah i my main area bell is weight management so eating exercise weight body image and i just feel like they're a team sport these challenges while you know all of the the six week programs and 12 week programs and diets out there you know promote themselves as it's easy change we all know and anyone who's been in this area for a long time knows that these challenges are so complex there's so many factors involved that to, to get someone to fundamentally change their eating their physical activity their lifestyle and their mindset it takes a long time and we don't want to make it harder than it needs to be, but it's hard work. So I think that we have to do it together. You know, psychologists, and I'm sure that trainers have got a similar kind of a mandate. We're not allowed to ethically practice with our clients if we're not being effective. And I think as a psychologist, I can't be effective in this space without the trainer, the dietitian, 
the doctor, the specialist doctors. And I think that the really cool thing is that, you know, you've probably heard from clients before how they don't like the way their doctors treat weight issues. They're like, oh, they were really ignorant of my, you know, you know, they embarrassed me or they brought everything back to you've got to lose weight when I had other medical health conditions or whatever it might be. There's really good research to show that doctors are fed up with weight management conversations themselves. They're kind of sitting in there and going, I really want to help this person, but I'm probably going to give them some recommendation like eat more fruit and veg, eat less fat or sugar, and they're going to come in six months later nothing will be different. So it just becomes this very disempowering and monotonous conversation. And so I really feel like, you know, doctors in terms of like GPs, they don't necessarily have the time nor the inclination nor the ability to really get into the detail of behavior change. So I think there's this massive opportunity for trainers, dietitians, and psychologists all together to really link up with GPs, link up with each other and create these great little multidisciplinary teams or interdisciplinary teams that can really take the load off GPs and then people are not going to be going to stuff that's not necessarily so evidence-based. They'll be, you know, be going to these little hubs of the, you know, kind of like the four-leaf clover of the, the doctor, the trainer, the dietitian and the psychologist because I think that that's what people really need. I know that that, you know, that then costs a little bit more money and it takes a bit more time but they'll, I'm sure you and, and all the trainers who are listening to this will have had clients who have yo-yoed for years, even decades. And I say to people, if you're going to do it, let's invest the time and the effort and the money and do it right. And I think the way to do this right is in, in an interdisciplinary way. Look, and I think, you know, trainers also, you know, when we talk about working with allied health professionals, when they, you know, do their Cert 3 and Cert 4, they kind of, you know, drilled into them that, you know, you should start really start aligning yourselves with allied health professionals because, you know, you're a personal trainer, you can't, you're not a chiropractor, you're not a physio, you don't, you know, unless you have those qualifications, then you're always going to refer on to somebody that's, you know, a, an expert in that field and is qualified in that area. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, the, the reality is that I think, you know, as a psychologist, I'm always interested in why people have barriers to those things. And I think we all, a lot of us, especially if our practices are not, you know, bursting at the seams, we kind of think, oh, well, do I send that person on to another person? Maybe that will just take my business. But I think that the reality is that referring is really, really good for business because when do our people stop seeing us they stop seeing us when they stop getting results so if you for example like you said if you've got a a person who you're working with and their results are limited because they need to go and see a chiro you go refer them to the chiro or the physio or whoever it might be they start to overcome that problem you and the physio or the chiro are talking then they can go to the next level they stay with you for another year or two so i think it actually ends up being really good for business and and when you find people that you love you want to refer to them and and that's the same with with the trainers when people you know you you get in and and have new networks we've just got one of our trainers link up with a a bariatric surgeon a weight loss surgeon that we work with and previously they haven't had a lot of exercise and and now they've just started sending people through to the trainer and they're realizing wow this can actually really help a lot of our clients really struggle to do physical activity and and you can see that that's going to be a good relationship it's going to get the trainer busy as well and i think that when you establish those good you know referral networks of 
people that, that love you and people that you love, the business just, you know, all of our business thrives. And, you know, I think that, that we have to, to be good at business these days, but our real why we started this profession for most of us is because we love working with people and we love seeing the people change and supporting them. So if you've got that great network that's sending you clients that you're sending clients, then you can spend more time doing the stuff that you really love doing and less time building your business because it sort of does it for you. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Such great insights. Now, before we end, if listeners want to find out more about you and your work, where's the best place to look? Probably you can add me on Instagram, just Glenn McIntosh, or we actually have a health professionals newsletter. We've got a fitness professionals one specifically. So if you go onto our website, you'll get one of those annoying little pop-ups and you can sign up for the, a newsletter, our newsletter. And then from there, you'll get a welcome email that asks you, are you a dietitian? Are you a psychologist or a counselor? Are you a fitness professional? Just click on that. And then I send you guys all stuff that I think is really cool for fitness professionals, mainly on the psychology of exercise. Great. And what's your website that people can go to? It is the longest website in the world, <laughs> www.weightmanagementpsychology.com.au. Perfect. So www.weightmanagementpsychology.com.au. Yep. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much, Glenn, for chatting with us at the Fitness Industry Podcast. Thanks for having me, Val. I've had a good time. For a huge range of online nutrition courses, including Networks Nutrition Intensive by Dr. Rebecca Reynolds, accredited for CECs and other professional development points, go to the Network website and select the Courses tab. The Nutrition Intensive includes modules on nutrition strategies for strength and size, fueling fat loss, and effective nutrition coaching. Members of Australian Fitness Network make huge savings of up to 30% on courses. Go to fitnessnetwork.com.au today to grow your skill set and fitness career. And for face-to-face learning, remember that network members also save on standard rates for Filex, the fitness industry convention.